What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Cartech Garage and another week in automotive history. Yeah. <laughs> it is another week. Yep. Yep. There was some history. We're going to talk about it. There's been a lot of it. Anyway. Yeah, there is. It seems All like right. every week. There's just a lot of history. It's really weird. Now Max is just trying to fill time. <laughs> Max is trying to fill you know, time. I See, crack jokes. I'm trying to be funny here. Yeah. Thankfully, this is not a comedy podcast because we definitely, we would be funny sometimes, but definitely uh, not for 20, 30 minutes. That, that's pretty tough. That's I wouldn't tough. promise that at all. So props out to the those who are, are in comedy and do podcasts and are actually funny the whole time. Absolutely. I mean, if, <laughs> if somebody other than your mom thinks you're funny, good job. <laughs> yeah. Thumbs up to you. Because I would, I would love to be in that position. <laughs> Anyways, back to the, the automotive-related topics. All right, September 5th <laughs> in 1916. We're taking it pretty far back here, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Barney Oldfield because on this day he set a closed-circuit speed record of 112.9 miles an hour, and this was at the Chicago board track. I know we've talked about board tracks a lot. I still like going over all this stuff. The interesting part about this one is he wasn't driving the Ford 999. He wasn't driving you know, the Golden Submarine by Harry Miller, he was driving a Christie front-wheel drive race car. Now, not many people know what Christie's are. Hold on, back up. Front-wheel drive uh -huh. race car? In okay. 1916, oh, wow. around okay. a board track. Okay. So uh, Christie, and not a lot of people know what, what Christie's are. Uh, Christie only built 12 cars. His name was John Christie, John Walter Christie. And he kind of pioneered front-wheel drive vehicles um, in a way. I mean, there, there were front-wheel drive like carriages and things like that, like steam engines one before, but this was the first car that was front-wheel drive that was actually like brought out to the public, raced in events, and, you know, pretty heavily publicized. And the guy was a genius. I mean, he actually started uh, his own company called Christie Ironworks, and, you know, he basically did all sorts of stuff during, uh, you know, World War One, and helped build a lot of turrets and things like that. And the, the point being is even before he got into all that, he still had this ironworks company and he started building cars. And I don't know what wild hair had him or had given him the idea to make it front wheel drive when the only yeah. cars at the time were all rear. Yeah, that's just, I guess, to be different was what I would assume. Or Well, you know, I mean, he, he experimented with it and, you know, he found, you know, turning and keep in mind, cars didn't have a ton of power back then. And to have the weight over the driven wheels was a pretty okay. big advancement, you know, so he actually had decent traction and everything. The hard part was he wasn't as well funded as some of those bigger teams back then, you know, like Dirac and, and Fiat and things like that. Yeah. Those, those were heavily funded teams with aircraft engines in them and stuff like that later and later in the years. So I'm trying to kind of, you know, take it in comparison to today's standards where you see a lot of front wheel drive cars, but that's due to, you know, selling vehicles to a consumer it's yeah. more cheap uh, to, well, it, to it build everything space. together yeah. you know that so that promotes makes more cabin space and everything else and know, I, to keep things compact yeah and i like that you know drivability of a front wheel drive car as as far as a daily driven you know something that you're not going through the snow or off-road or anything you know it's it's kind of the best of both worlds but just trying Unless to think you're of, drive but yeah, yeah, yeah different story different story <laughs> but again that's but, yeah, more money more moving parts so you i'm still just have trying to think tunnel. of of at that time you know back in 1916 what like what that difference of feeling was because obviously if most vehicles were rear wheel drive and we're talking cars that really aren't going that fast you know was there like a 
a huge gain to having that front wheel drive, you know, powertrain. Well, not at first. I mean, he, like I said, he wasn't really successful in it. The first race that he entered in, uh, Christy, that, that being said was in 1905. He had built a car in 1904, um, raced it in 1905, didn't win. Um, and the, the cool part was he actually wrecked into the guy that was supposed to win. <laughs> so that's how he got like a lot of unwanted publicity. That makes sense. Yeah. So he like wrecked into the guy that, that was going to win and um, he ended up knocking him out of first place. So they were pretty, pretty mad, but he ended up coming back in 1906 and again in 1907. So in 1907, he set his height, his sights pretty high. Um, again, still didn't win, but what he did build was a totally new car. And this was like a major leap for him because in 1907, he built a 20 liter V4 engine that sat right over the front wheels of this car. I mean, we'll have to show a picture of it at some point in time on all of the that, other platforms, but that makes sense as far as traction goes, because I'm sure that wasn't a light V4. Well, a, actually, it was, really? um, it was a huge car, but since everything was pretty compact, uh, again, packed relative to the time, <laughs> Okay, okay. supposedly this car weighed 1800 pounds less than a Miata. And you said 20 liter, 20 liters, but you got to think it, it was still pretty rudimentary. So the cylinders were just big, hollow steel sleeves. Okay. You know, they weren't, it wasn't like it had a huge engine block with a water cooling system and all this stuff. I mean, if you look at the picture, there's literally, it looks like four giant like, um, pots, you know, for like cooking, <laughs> sticking out of the hood at, at, at a V angle with, with, you know, tubes and stuff running between them. But he kept building and building and building and getting better and better. Eventually, he came out with an even better V4 engine, and he really kind of kept that going. But um, he ended up uh, driving the first front-wheel drive car to ever go onto the Indianapolis 500 Speedway. Oh, wow. Yep, okay. and that was still when it was totally paved with brick. As soon as that happened, he actually went in and set a speed record. Of course, it was broken later, but one of his cars did hold a speed record for a short period of time. And then Barney Oldfield came again in 1916, driving his newest 140 horsepower model and went 112 miles an hour at uh, the Chicago board track. So basically, in essence, all I heard was, you know, to all you Honda guys that love the, the front wheel drive life, which I'm one of those two, you know, love it. This guy was kind of the founder of that whole front-wheel drive race car thing. Yeah, front-wheel drive, four-cylinder. <laughs> it's a 20-liter four-cylinder. So just so you know, that's kind of where the heritage comes from, I guess. Yeah, you know? and it's funny is this 1916 140-horsepower car still has more power than my Miata. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so it all, it all falls uh, back to one thing. All right, I'm so going to right, podcast over. I need some time to cry. Um, September 7th, um, 1952, we'll move ahead. Um 69 years ago, Lee Petty grabbed the lead from Herb Thomas. You guys know who Herb Thomas is, right? And Lee yeah. Petty. Oh, yeah. So obviously, you know, Lee Petty is Richard Petty's dad, stock car racers. Now, um, it was pretty cool because this was still back when they were racing the fabulous Hudson Hornets and all that stuff, you know, in the early 50s. But um, he took the lead with five laps left at Central City Speedway in Macon, Georgia. Um, so he put his 51 Plymouth to a 14 second win over Thomas's Hudson Hornet. And that was, a, that was still on dirt track too. That was a half mile dirt track there. Really? Yep. And making it that time. That's just, just so much more fun. Thinking of these cars too, that are in it, you know, just looking back at them and just kind of scratching my head and trying to compare them to, to today's terms as, as what you see as far as race cars go. 
Like this is like them racing boats. Well, yeah. I mean, well, this was stock car racing still, yeah. you know, I mean, this was, <laughs> so it was your stock car sitting in your driveway. Basically. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it was early fifties when, you know, NASCAR even got it started. Um, it still just blows my mind yeah. of just, you know, exactly. instead of, Hey, how fast can I make my car go? No, it's how fast can I get my car to go? <laughs> totally different do. mentality. Well, I mean, that, that's a racer's mentality. If you think about it, you know, yeah, whatever they're given, they just try to extract the most out of it. You know, instead of like all those guys that just like roll racing. Oh, although I will say if you have a really high horsepower car, roll racing is pretty exciting. Yeah, it is. It Apart from that, it's, it's not. <laughs> We're talking thousands. Like, definitely. Why? Definitely cool. Why? All right. And um, not speaking of roll racing, we're going to talk about Pikes Peak. September 8th, 1955, um, a pretty legendary time at Pikes Peak because this guy named Zora raced a disguised Chevrolet up the mountain and set a stock car record at the time. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Now, the... um, Neat part is it was actually a 1956 model Corvette. Zora Arcus Duntoff, who we've talked about before, was yeah. really the guy responsible for turning that lame blue flame, you know, first generation Corvette into something that could be respected. But he had to hide it. Yes. Yeah, to hide because it because nobody everybody. knew what it was. You know, uh-huh. so he basically did a, a totally disguised 1956 model Corvette, different body panels on it, and it had a fire-breathing V8 under the hood. So basically, he made the outside look like a different vehicle, yeah. but it like was this guy. Essence. This guy didn't make the Corvette, but he made the Corvette cool. Okay, okay. Yeah. So like the C2 Stingray, you know, when they started putting the 427s, if he hadn't come about, none of that would have happened. And we may not have the Corvette Z06. Well, we certainly wouldn't have the Z06. Um, and we wouldn't have the ZR1. I mean, we wouldn't have part of that bald, eagle-ish American heritage that lays rubber down the street. You know, and especially Pikes Peak, too, because this was, what, way back when, before it was completely paved. Mm-hmm. So doing that is yeah. just crazy in itself, because you've been to Pikes Peak, haven't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course you have. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, that, and that's the thing, you know, it's very rare that the designer of the car is also the guy that goes out and races it. I yeah, love when I see happen. that. That's why I love Bruce McLaren so much. Especially you especially know? like Pikes Peak, too, where that's like a one Jack little... Rattle turn wrong once you're you're towards the top end of it it's game over dead (laughs) dead there is no he might make it no uh uh-uh you're you're done yeah well i know there's been a lot of people who have wrecked and survived too more more they they have still (laughs) dd for those of you who think hey i'm just gonna go you know drive my normal car as fast as i can up pike's peak but again and to do do it it. when you're not technically a professional race car driver that's kind of neat too but again i've always respected people who build and race so i mean you've got you know like jack brabham I mean, the only guy ever to, to win with his own car. I mean, you know, that's just, it's so cool when you see somebody that's that multi-talented. Mm-hmm. You know? That's what, like, my favorite memory of Pikes Peak, the one that just I remember in my head, you know, among all of the other great races, everything that's gone on in, like, today's standards is, I think it was, I forget which vehicle, it was Ken Block, I think in his Hoonicorn, mm-hmm. when he just slides and he's almost at the top of Pikes yeah. Peak. And, I mean, the wheels are about to go off the edge of the cliff. And like, that's what I, when I think of Pike's Peak, that's like the first thing that pops in my head now after seeing that video. Cause I'm just like, he's got some, <laughs> he's got some, something under there that some great yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> oh yeah, man. Among that, you know, there's way more lineage and, and, and racing history that's as part of Pike's Peak, but that's yeah. in my brain, just that, just that, that that's what describes one. Pike Peak right there. Then one little short 30 second clip, that would be it. That's not bad. That is not bad at all. I always think of like, um, 
like the Unser's, how they still run up Pikes Peak and mm-hmm. stuff like that. I mean, those home brewed creations basically look like like you know mountain F one cars almost. Mm-hmm. That's so cool. Now, what? How long did it take him to make this record? I can't remember. Okay, yeah. so you know it was set the it record was faster than other people. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's very less, less time than other people. I don't know. I'd, I'd have to look that one up. I can't remember. Yeah, um, so moving ahead here, September 9th, 1944. Uh, so you guys may not know this name, uh, Robert Benoit. Uh, it, it, the way it's spelled, it's not, it's Robert Benoist is how it's, is how it's spelled. But um, okay. he, he was French. French. Yep, okay. There we go. <laughs> He's uh, French. So <laughs> the cool thing about, about Robert, he was a pre-war racing legend absolute legend did match races and all sorts of stuff driven every race you can imagine um he was actually in world war one and then in the early 1920s he started getting into racing and when world war ii came about he of course he had to stop racing but he actually became a french resistance leader against the nazis during world war ii um but on this day he was actually executed by his captors in buchenheim a, a concentration camp um, but one year later to the day, September 9th, 1945, the very first post-World War II car races were even held just outside of Paris. And the Robert Benoit Cup was the very first race that was run in that's, his honor. That's really awesome to, to have that honor of something like that. Because I just can't imagine being a, you know, really good race car legend and all of a sudden saying, hey, I'm going to go to war. And then being, you know, obviously... Very well in the war, and then what's well, the thing? You know, gone to war twice. Like this guy, obviously, race car like, a, like he was a man. Yeah, like, no doubt about it. I, <laughs> I, I, I can't even. <laughs> I can't even compare. You know, the, the type of tribulations that I've been through to something like this guy. You know, yeah. like I didn't have a great childhood, but like this guy, literally grew up in a war, got out, raced, <laughs> raced. raced cars that tried to kill you every six seconds. Oh, this now that's and now it's then starting to click a little. When they're bit like, now. okay, you can't race cars anymore. He was like, all right, well, I'll just go shoot people again. <laughs> We're like, what the hell? Yeah, this guy just <laughs> just wants to die. <laughs> no, I mean, obviously, you know, he was leading French resistance. Yeah. I mean, he and from all accounts that I've found on him, you know, I mean, he he certainly had his heart in the right place. I mean, yeah. you know, they get, the guy risked his life and and really put it out there for for his fellow man. So you gotta you gotta and respect we don't know that. In you know, the history, but just looking at it, it's kind of it's a little bit it's crazy to, to see race you Good know war gosh. war guy race car driver back in a war. And then obviously, you know, he, he was executed, but I mean, it, it's, I'm glad that at least there's still a little bit about this guy, yeah, you know, really that, we, that we can find, but they ran three races that day. I found this out too. Um, the first one was, uh, the Robert Benoit cup. That was for smaller engines. That uh, was won by a Fiat. The next race was the Coupe de la Liberation, mm-hmm. uh, with cars for 1.5 to three liters. And then they had uh, Maserati won that one. And then they had uh, the, um, the grand race, which was Coupe de la Prisonnières which I don't, I, they just named it that, I guess, after World War II. They're like, okay, the guy who died, and then liberation, and then prisoners, and then that was won by Bugatti. Okay. Yeah. Of course. Be- well, it's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, you get to see, you know, back here in 1945, it was all of the late 30s race cars that were still fast. Uh, okay. Um, you know, they basically grabbed all those out of storage and started racing them again because they had a, a manufacturing years, yeah. capability to break, to make a new car. So you're like, well, what, why was, uh, why, why, what happened in 1939 to 1946? Duh. Nothing. <laughs> Not, <laughs> Not car nothing production. with cars. Yeah, exactly. 
More so like a tank, as I was the joke it. I always make. I'm like, I'm surprised we've never heard of like tank racing. Yeah, you know, during it's just this like period. like uh, Chevrolet. Like they were the first ones to come out with a, a new car uh, post World War II, and Ford lagged behind because they were still, you know, uh, you know, converting all of their uh, production facilities over. So. Yeah. It took a little while for them to catch back on until they made the new one. I would think after the fact, nobody would want army green uh, for every vehicle. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You're like, all right, remember that one color I said you could have it in? It changed. <laughs> it's army green now. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. All right. Uh, September 10th, 1967, 53 years ago, John Surtees snatched the victory in Italy after Jim Clark's epic drive was let down by a fuel pump failure. Now, Jim Clark is one of my favorite racers of all time, for sure. I also have a huge spot in my heart for John Surtees, um, but this one particularly is about Jim Clark. The next one's about Surtees. So, um, let's see. That's, I mean, Whoa. I feel like there's a lot of a lot of failed parts that can, can attest well, to yeah. assist in wins for a lot well, of people. The cool part about this one, so Clark started out winning led the first 12 laps in and it's considered to be one of the greatest races he's ever driven. He was in a Honda RA 300, which, um, you know, was an awesome car back in the day, but Honda had really struggled to try and make something that was competitive and they finally made something good. Um, but what happened is on lap 12, Jim Clark got a tire puncture. He was down an entire lap, the whole lap. And, then he spent the next 48 laps recovering and making his way all the way back up to number one. The next wow. 48 laps from, from a lap down all the way up to first. Now, honest, obviously, that shows you how quick this Honda was, but also how perfectly he yeah. could drive at the limit. That's not, you can't make a mistake trying no. to make that kind of comeback. No. There are and, zero. And a race like that wouldn't happen nowadays with current aerodynamics and things like that. It's so easy to get trapped behind another car. But on the final lap, a faulty fuel pump restricted his power heavily. It started uh, messing up. And unfortunately, Jack Brabham and Surtees passed him right at the end, like on the final straight. I, I, my competitive self, I would have been so mad, so angry. <laughs> so angry at that one. Oh my God, that's funny. Oh, dude, I skipped one. Hey, September 6, 1964. <laughs> I skipped a whole one, a whole day. Uh, you know, it's been a, it's been a morning so far. Yeah, yeah. But speaking of John right. Surtees, I was like, wait a minute. I know I had one for John Surtees. So John Surtees won the, uh, the Italian Grand Prix for Ferrari, September 6, 1964. Now he actually won the, uh, Grand Prix championship in 1964. He won the driver's championship. So he's in fact, the only man ever to win a world championship on four wheels and two wheels, because prior to F1, he raced motorcycles for Grand Prix and he was quick in those as well, winning himself a world championship. That's pretty neat. It is, isn't it? Quickest on two and four wheels. That's a, that's a pretty awesome plaque to hang on your wall. It is. It There's is. no doubt about that. See, I was going to say, because I'm sure you'll remember this, like, why didn't everybody ever race with six wheels? But didn't somebody try to do that at one point in time? Yeah, I can't a couple remember. people. Tyrrell did. March did. With what, two or four uh, front did, wheels? Tyrrell did four front wheels. March did four rear wheels. Yeah. <laughs> we should make that a thing, you know? Six-wheel we racing. Well, it used to, I mean, the, the Tyrrell car was... Uh, decently competitive. I mean, it, it ran for a season, uh, but it was so cute. They were like little 12 inch wheels. Yeah, so I remember cute. that. You showed me that. I remember. That reminds me of shadow it. racing. Shadow racing um, had built a Can-Am car 
And um, it was totally, well, they also built an F1 car for a season, but they built a Can-Am car. And on their Can-Am car, um, it had 12-inch wheels on it as well. These tiny, tiny little wheels that just looked like a, a buff go-kart <laughs> on steroids. <laughs> it was like smaller than the rest of the field. It was quick. It just wasn't, I don't know. You know just you, you talking about this and two wheels and four wheels. Like, I'm yeah. surprised we don't have any like racing uh, triathlons, if you will, where, you know, motorcycle, you do a race car, yeah, yeah, yeah. whether it's, you and know, you got track, like or track racing and then like drift like, maybe or like, or a, like rally uh-huh. or something or drift or rally. Like that would be really neat You're to that have or that. like, like do dirt, snow and pavement. That That'd would be, be pretty, pretty cool. cool. It would, that would be almost cool. like a triathlon, you know, like a 24 hours of Le Mans. Well, I guess tri- Pike, Pike's Peak used to be pavement, dirt and snow as you went up. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess, yeah, <laughs> more but, like you, you switch vehicles. You're not using the same vehicle every time and, and you've got to jump from one to the other yeah, you know, exactly. with a triathlon and quad and they have all the, the, the crazy ones nowadays where but you're I mean, doing swimming, you do like, biking, like a, like running. Like a swift tire change or something like for a different set of wheels and tires. Mm, you got to change it up because you think, you know, the people that do the triathlon triathlons they do swimming they'll do a bicycle ride and they'll run or i think there's a couple other different things that they'll do too well normally it's swimming biking and running as a triathlon but i know yeah. there's like other other like crazy like ones there's like the four tough and, five and yeah. iron mans where they're like hmm. but that would be neat so if anybody's listening it'd be a great idea i yeah, could exactly. buy that that yeah. kind of race that would be fun to watch actually you're not, you're not i can't like, sit still for long the so. hard part is how do you contract like all these drivers i don't know I mean, i'm sure there's a lot of drivers that would sign up um, the hard part is the specialties. Like you're not going to get any F1 drivers in there, but I guarantee you guys like Travis Pastrana would be in oh, on yeah. it. They'd be like racing. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, I'm in, I'm in for mean, any type of it. Absolutely. <laughs> you mean I just have to go fast and win? Okay, sure. Deal. I would give me whatever you want me to drive. Yeah. Where do I sign? <laughs> Where do I sign? I have a helmet already. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Last one up, uh, September 11th in 1966. Uh, again, about John Surtees. This guy's everywhere. Yeah, this um, was his week. It really was. So he won the very first race of the Canadian American Racing Series. We've done a whole podcast on that as well. Um, the very first race of the new Can-Am Series was in Quebec, and he was driving a Lola T70, which had, which had a Chevy 427. Lola. Um, so Can-Am <laughs> actually started out as a race series for Group 7 with the FIA. Um, but since all the uh, races were primarily held in Canada and the United States, they decided to call it the Can-Am Race Series. But it was uh, really started out for their car regulation as Group 7. Um, and they were all governed under that for a-, a while because the only thing was you had to have four wheels, enclosed bodywork, and two seats. And those were, I think, literally the only three rules that you really had to abide by unrestricted engine capacity. You could run any suspension setup you wanted, all sorts of crazy stuff. Now, the coolest thing about the Canadian American Racing Series, just to recap, is, or rather, were the cars that came out of it, without yeah. a doubt. I mean, if you look at one end of the spectrum, in terms of outright speed, you had the had Porsche with their 917, which was developed, obviously, crossbreed between Le Mans or other types yeah. almost of, light years ahead of, oh, of its yeah. time and for Can-Am racing for Le Mans and another type of endurance racing, but their nine seventeen uh, thirty was a monster. We're talking like a 14, 13, 1400 horsepower twin turbo flat 12. They actually took that car out to uh, Alabama super speedway, mm-hmm. which is now Talladega and ran a closed course speed record. It was like 230 something miles an hour. Um, <laughs> crazy. It, it, it still hasn't been beaten. Um, it's just nuts, the cars that came out of this. And if you look at some of the earlier cars, 
<clears throat> you had guys like Jim Hall with Chaparral come in who made the first movable aerodynamic device on a mm. car, the first wing to provide additional downforce under braking and cornering. And we have a whole podcast yep. on, on the can racing series. You had, in my opinion, the predecessor to Brabham's fan car, BT46B. Yep. You had <laughs> the Chaparral 2J, which was basically a 427-powered box with four wheels that also <laughs> had a two-stroke snowmobile engine that Heard powered a giant fan that sucked it to the ground with ground effects. Downforce. <laughs> Literally the first car to incorporate ground effects along with a turbo fan to suck it to the ground. I mean, you had all sorts of crazy stuff. It's crazy. All sorts of it. It's Completely crazy. unregulated. For the first few years, um, you know, McLaren really kind of dominated everything. Mm -hmm. um, after that, it moved to Porsche when they really got a lot of money into it. And then the final year after they actually started setting some technical regulations for power, um, Porsche dipped, McLaren dipped. They went to go do other things in Europe. And then uh, Shadow stayed to win the, the final uh, championship in 87. That's neat though. Yeah. That was a, just, a. as I said, I wish we had more races like that, you know, nowadays, but you have to have so many restrictions. There's so much safety added into it, you know, with the amount of power that you can produce from an engine, even a small one cylinder, you know, turboed engine yep. is astronomical in comparison to what they could do back then. So it's just not, it's not, doesn't make sense to have a race like this because you would probably have a lot of accidents going on, unfortunately. Yeah. And, you know, maybe that's the fun in it. You know, I don't mind. Well, I mean, technically, you know, new F1 cars are far faster than these were, but it would just be nice to see some type of unregulated race. I know, but that's then it's like, where do you stop pouring money in it to gain precious one hundredths of a second off a lap time? You that know? is true. Anyway, it just takes away just some fun. You know, hey, yeah, bring what you have. Hey. Make it go fast. We're not going to tell you what kind of race it is. Like that would be neat. Like a blindfolded race where basically, hey, we're we're having this race. We'll give you a couple hints. Here you go. Good luck. <laughs> like bring whatever car you want, whatever setup you can have. You know, and like nobody knows what the track layout yeah, is. You can or have like three sets of wheels. Um, you can bring a couple extra spare parts, but you know, other than that, just bring something, and we'll see you on race day. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. You know, have all these street cars trying to race the, um, on snow. I should start doing the uh, trivia questions on here, too. That would be good. Yeah. Hey, you guys want to know a fun fact? The 1967 Shelby Mustangs actually used taillights from the Mercury Cougar. But in 1968, the Shelby taillights were actually from a 1966 Thunderbird. Really? Yeah. That is this week's trivia question. <laughs> there we go. On the radio show. Too bad you guys can't call in because you're hearing this after the fact. Yeah. A couple of days after the fact. Yep, so. Indeed. So let's see if anybody in Cincinnati can get that one right. All right, guys. Fun. Well, thanks again for listening to another week in this automotive history, this week in automotive history, and me rant about cars and nonsense. Yeah. Once again, appreciate you guys. Thank you for listening. and Stay tuned for more. Bye.